Luke 5, continuing through the study of Luke, uh, Jesus the, the, is the fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams and, and, and stories of the Old Testament and all the hopes and dreams of every human heart. Luke 5. Uh, when I hear the word paradox, uh, you know, uh, we talk about things being, being paradoxical or we think about paradox. When I hear that word paradox, I think about, uh, or my mind, uh, you know, you guys that, that know me know that I love movies, and so my mind goes to like uh, movies like sci-fi movies where there's time travel involved, and so these paradoxical situations are created, like Back to the Future where, you know, Marty McFly goes, you know, to the past and he messes with the timeline and he comes to the future and... And, and it's this new timeline, but like, would he even exist in the new timeline? That's what I think about when I think about paradox. I think about Terminator, you know, John Connor uh, sends this guy back to the past to rescue his mom. That turns out to be John Connor's dad. I'm not seeing watch Terminator, but I'm saying that's a paradox, okay? Uh, like, how could that be? How could that even happen? And we think about, like, that's where my mind goes. I think about time travel, but the idea of paradox was around, surprisingly, this was uh, you know, the, the, the idea of a paradox was around way before 80s sci-fi movies started coming out, uh, interestingly. And a paradox is, is uh, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated may prove to be well-founded or true. A paradox literally means, in the, in the, the Greek, paradoxa it means beside belief or beside opinion. A paradox is something contradictory to established opinion or belief. So a statement like less is more, that's a paradoxical statement. How can less be more? But as we investigate it, it turns out to be true. Um, Oscar Wilde made this paradoxical statement. He said, I can resist anything but temptation. Some of us can, res- can, can uh, relate to that When I can resist anything but temptation. And so in ancient Greek usage, uh, the word paradoxa refers to an unusual event contrary to belief and expectation. An unusual event contrary to belief and expectation. And that word, although it appears a lot in ancient Greek, it only appears one time, paradoxa, where we get our word paradox, it occurs one time in the New Testament. And that's in our passage where we're going to be today. So, so uh, we're, we're looking at that word paradoxa, we're looking at that word paradox, and looking at how Jesus is a walking paradox. We look at Jesus, and He is contrary to our beliefs and expectations. He does things that are contrary to our beliefs and expectations. He does things that we consider paradoxical. So remember, in, this, in the setting, in the passage, the context here, Jesus has been healing the sick and casting out demons, and, and, and he's, he's been demonstrating his authority. The authority of the kingdom of God has been preaching and teaching that God's kingdom, God's rule, God's reign has come near, and, and we can be part of God's mission. We can be part of what God's up to. And so picking up in Luke 5, verse 17, on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So they've come from all over. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him and and lay him before Jesus. How many of us have heard this story in in vacation Bible school? Uh, But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when He saw their faith. He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up uh, what he had been lying on, went home glorifying God, and amazement seized them all. They glorified God. They were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. We have seen paradoxes today. We have seen things today that defy expectation. We have seen things today that are contrary to established opinion and belief. All right? Jesus is bigger than our boxes. That, that's a phrase that we use a lot. We talk about putting God in a box and all these things. Jesus is bigger than our boxes. And we all, if you took a poll of every person really on the planet and said, is God bigger than your box? All of us would say yes. Of course, God's bigger than my box. Uh, and yet, we all find ourselves continually trying to like find that box that, 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 that God's going to fit in. And some of us have crammed God into this neat little Democrat box. And some of us have crammed him into this neat little Republican box. And some of us have crammed him into this neat little conservative box and into this neat little liberal box. And we've got God all figured out. Some of us have crammed God into this neat little Pentecostal box or this neat little Baptist box or whatever box we can come up with. And we have our system. We have it figured out. And what we end up doing is we build this protective wall around God. And that's what the Pharisees are doing here. They build this, they've built this protective wall around God. But what we find is when we try to build a wall around God, we end up on the wrong side of it. When we try to build a wall around God, we end up on the wrong side of it, and we're actually separated from Him. Um, so who, who showed up there when Jesus is teaching? It's amazing the kind of crowds that, that show up when, when Jesus was teaching. Uh, the same kind of people showed up then as now. Jesus draws the dutiful, and Jesus draws the desperate. And so you've got uh, Pharisees and scribes in the room, and they've come from all over the country, and they're just waiting to catch Jesus doing something wrong. And then you've got these desperate men. They are desperate, and they've got this friend that's sick, and he needs to be healed, and they're just foolish enough to believe that Jesus can do something to heal him. And, and they don't come up and say, oh, the parking lot's full, sorry guys, uh, uh, let's go to lunch. No, they say, and let's climb on the roof cut a hole in this place, and let's lower our friend down. Like, that's what desperate people do. And so you've got the dutiful uh, Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law sitting there kind of taking notes. What can I catch Jesus saying or doing that's wrong? In the next chapter, they're going to take this to, the, to such a degree that Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and they say, can you really heal a man on the Sabbath? Wow! And it's really easy for us 2,000 years later to look down our noses at the scribes and the Pharisees and how religious they were and how they tried to put God in a box. And yet we miss all the ways that we continue to try to do this today. So Jesus draws then and Jesus draws now the dutiful and the desperate. And there's dutiful among us this morning. And there's desperate among us this morning. Even in my heart, there's a dutiful guy in here that's punching his card. And in my heart, there is a desperate guy in here that needs Jesus so much more than he even knows he needs Jesus. And so, so Jesus draws the dutiful and he, and he draws the desperate. 
And the Pharisees, again, we look down our noses at them, but these, these, are, these are not axe murderers, okay? These are guys that have studied the law and they're, and, and, and they're good. They would be considered good and reliable. And if you needed something done, like you would call a Pharisee and say, hey, I know I can count on you to do what you say. These are honorable people who've studied uh, the word and, 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 and they've come to this conclusion that sin separates us from God. And that was a true conclusion. That was an accurate conclusion. We're tracking with them so far. But their solution to that sin problem was, let's get so, um, let's, let's get so uh, uh, dutiful in our keeping of the law and let's pressure everybody else into keeping the law. And when we're all dutiful enough and keep the law enough, we're going to force the Messiah's hand and he's going to come. When we get our adherence to the law uh, where it needs to be, the Messiah is going to come. And they're longing for the kingdom of God. They're longing for the king. And this is the irony. This is a sad irony here. Is they're so interested in Jesus because he's talking about their subject, the kingdom of God. But he's doing it all wrong. He's letting, he, he, he's letting the wrong people in. Fishermen and tax collectors, not us. He's letting the wrong people and there's sinful women that are, that are washing his feet and there's, there's tax collectors that he's eating and drinking with. He doesn't fast like he's supposed to. He lets his disciples walk through the field and eat grain on the Sabbath and he heals people on the Sabbath. He's talking about forgiving your enemies. No, we don't forgive our enemies. The Messiah is going to kill our enemies. See, they've got God all figured out and Jesus is doing it all wrong. And they're staring at the answer to their prayer and they don't recognize him. They've built their whole lives on looking for the king and they end up opposing him and conspiring with their enemies, the Sadducees, to crucify him. Liberals and conservatives work together to crucify him. Isn't that interesting how that works? So, so, so Jesus is threatening their, their way of life. Now, the, the, the Pharisees aren't priests. These are a... These are, these are lay people. This is a pressure group who they're going to pressure everybody into keeping the law. I heard Richard Faust give a great message at a meeting yesterday, and he talked about being informed versus transformed. And the Pharisees are this picture of these people who are so informed. I mean, they've, they've studied God's Word. They know God's Word. They know the answers. They're informed, but they're not transformed. And that's an issue that continues to plague the church today. Nobody's ever been as informed as we are. But is our information leading to transformation? Is our information leading to obedience? Are we obedient with what we know? Are we honoring God with what we know? And it's like we, we want more and more information. But God doesn't say that He's all about informing us. He, he wants to transform us. Um, the, the Pharisees have become captive to their traditions rather than being captivated by God. That didn't stop 2,000 years ago. You ever get really captivated by your thoughts about God? I know I do. And I can get so captivated, we can get so captivated, and this has been a blight on the church for 2,000 years, we can get so captivated by tradition that we cease to be captivated by God. I, I came across this quote from Bob Goff. Uh, I read it on Twitter, so it must be good, right? And Bob Goff tweeted, Words I never thought I would tweet is not a word I thought I would use in the sermon. But he tweeted this. He said, most of pride's prisoners think they are the guards. That's such a deep statement. I'm just going to let you chew on that. Um, chew on that as you're chewing on some barbecue here in a little while. Most of pride's prisoners think they are the guards. And that describes the Pharisees and that so often describes me. 
And when we try to build a wall around God, we end up on the wrong side of it. These dutiful ones are sitting in judgment of what Jesus is saying. They're there as critics to keep him in line, and they're there to catch him doing something wrong. And then these desperate men show up. And they've got a friend in need, so they climb the roof, and they dig a hole, and they lower him in. And three times the word bring is used. Their focus is to bring, bring, bring their friend to Jesus. And some, they're going to do whatever it takes to bring their friend to Jesus. And some of us might be saying right now, well, I wish I had a friend like that. I wish it did. But you know what? There's somebody that needs a friend like that. And you can, you can be that. You can be that friend. Rather than saying, well, nobody's, nobody's that kind of friend to me, you be that kind of friend. You be the game changer. Let Christ in you burn so hot that you don't stop at anything, to, anything short of cutting a hole in the roof to bring your friend to Jesus. you got a friend that's addicted. you got a friend whose marriage is in trouble. I mean, you got a friend who's, who's going through something. And it's so easy to say, wow, I see that friend in need. I hope somebody deals with that. And yet, What's it look like to be the friend that says, I'm going to cut a hole in the roof for you. Let's get crazy. Let's get desperate. I know it's, 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 uh, it's where it gets challenging. It's desperate guys show up. Verse 20, Jesus sees their faith. How does he see their faith? He sees their faith as he's teaching and the, and the, 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 the dirt starts to crumble from the roof and there's all this noise up there. And then feet start sticking out and then a bed gets lowered down and there's a dude on it and he's paralyzed and there's his friends with their heads poking through and say, hey, we figured you could do something about this guy. And Jesus sees their faith. He sees their faith because he sees what they do with their faith. Our actions reveal what we believe. We can talk all day long. But it's our actions, it's what we do that reveals what we truly believe. And these men's actions reveal that they were desperate for Jesus. They are desperate for Jesus. And they will do whatever it takes to get their friend in front of Jesus. It's easier to say, man, I hope somebody deals with that. So Jesus brings the dutiful and the desperate together. And when the dutiful and the desperate get together, sparks are going to fly. And we're going to find out in this passage that Jesus is bigger than our boxes. And so, so uh, the dutiful and the desperate are there. And then we see Jesus taking kingdom authority over sickness and over sin. All right, verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so Jesus sees the sick man and he says, Your sins are forgiven. Is Jesus saying that the guy's uh, paralyzed because of his sin? No. But Jesus is speaking to this deeper sickness. There's this deeper need the guy has than to be able to walk. There's this deeper need we all have. And that's that our greatest need is to be reconciled with God and to experience the freedom that can only come with that word of release. It's surprising to the desperate. Forgiveness, that's, what, that's not what I came looking for. And it's infuriating to the dutiful way. You can't do that. Only God can do that. And the scribes and Pharisees say he's being uh, blasphemous. And guess what the consequence was for blaspheming? Death. They're saying he needs to die. They're already saying that. When Jesus blows up our box, we want to kill him and we want to throw him out. That was true 2,000 years ago and it's true now. We don't like it when Jesus blows up our neat little box. And so, and so Jesus says, which is easier to say, 
your sins are forgiven or to say uh, rise and walk? And now uh, people have debated on this, but you know, Jesus could say your sins are forgiven and then nobody could come and verify that. We just kind of have to take his word on it, right? But if he says rise and walk, well, that's going to that's gonna be really obvious if what he said comes to be or not. And so he says, so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says, rise and walk. And the guy picks up his, 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 uh, his bedroll and he walks out with it. And so some of us are saying, yeah, I'd believe if I saw paralyzed people get up and walk around. Sure, I'd believe then. That's what we need. To, and there's some of us in the church that are saying it's all about it's all about the miraculous. And we got to see more and more and more miracles. And let's have more of that. And that's, that's the problem with the churches. There's not enough people you know, walk, coming in paralyzed and walking out healed. And then some of us are saying, no, no, no. It's not really about that. It's really about forgiveness. The gospel is really all about forgiveness. And what we so often miss is that the, the, the powerful, miraculous healings and this, this powerful and amazing act of forgiveness both point to a greater reality. And that greater reality that forgiveness points toward and the greater reality that miraculous healings point forward is this reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what the good news is. Jesus Christ is Lord. And because He's Lord, He heals. He forgives our sins. He heals our diseases. He redeems our life from the pit. Because He is Lord, He forgives. His forgiveness, His healing point to this greater reality. He calls Himself here the Son of of man. And that was a phrase of just saying like somebody, but it also had a special meaning. If you, I hope and pray you remember from when we walked through Daniel a few weeks ago, and in Daniel 7, go back and read it this afternoon or tomorrow. In Daniel 7, there's this passage about one like a son of man who's exalted up on the clouds. And he comes to the right hand of the Father and he's endowed with rule and authority and power. Jesus is saying when he calls himself the Son of Man, when he's the Son of Man who heals and forgives, the greater reality that he's pointing to is I'm the one you've been expecting all of this time. I'm the fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams of the Old Testament. Both healing and forgiveness point to this greater reality that Jesus is the King, He's the Messiah, He's bigger than our boxes. Jesus changes our campfire conversation. Look in, in verse um, 25. Immediately the man rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. They glorified God. They were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. And again, it's tempting to say, Well, if I saw more extraordinary things then I'd really, be on, I'd, I'd, I'd really be diving into this Jesus thing. But I just don't see enough extraordinary things. You know, there are people who did not leave this church service glorifying God. There were people, even though they saw the same thing, they left saying Jesus is a blasphemer who needs to die. And they continued to see Jesus do amazing things. They watched Him heal a man with a withered hand. Can you really do that on the Sabbath? And then after years of this, the same people see him on a cross and say, hey, bring yourself down from that cross and then we'll believe. So let's be really careful when we say, well, if God would just do this, then I would believe. Because we have a great capacity for unbelief. Um, but 
The campfire conversation does get changed when Jesus is at the center. Suddenly people are in awe. People are overjoyed. People are glorifying God. And they're filled with awe. Amazement sees everybody. That word amazement is ecstasy. There's just this, this ecstatic uh, just explosion of worship. Of Wow, can you believe what God did? And how many things happen that are miraculous that we just kind of shrug our shoulders about? See, when Jesus is at the center, not only do more amazing, miraculous things happen, but we start noticing the miraculous that we normally don't ever see. I'll get with you after the service, Anthony, okay? Thank you. Um, but, but, we, but we get, we start noticing things that our sin-blinded eyes hadn't noticed before. So the campfire conversation goes from being, can you believe what Jesus did? Can you believe that my box just got blown up? And the conversation becomes, can you believe that I get to be part of something so amazing? Can you believe that God is still restoring marriages? Can you believe that God sets addicts free? Can you believe that God heals broken hearts? Can you believe that God still heals the sick and that God still forgives uh, the sin and that God still redeems our life from the pit? That's what the conversation becomes. The campfire conversation becomes. And that word extraordinary things is that word paradox. We've seen paradoxes today. Isaiah 55, 8, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. That's one that imprint on your heart. Because if we're worshiping a God who votes the way I vote, who thinks the way I think, who likes the people I like, and who hates the people I hate, we're worshiping ourselves. We're not worshiping God. We're worshiping something we created. And Jesus is paradoxical. He continues to do extraordinary things, unexpected things, and His whole life, is paradoxical. He says, uh, you know, he is the suffering Lord. How does that go together? He's the humble king. The king of the universe who washes feet like a slave. He's the enemy-loving, cross-carrying creator of the cosmos. He's the one pierced for our transgressions, who heals us by his stripes. He's the one who wins by losing. He's the one who died and rose. What greater paradox is that? That we believe in death and resurrection. In Luke 6, Jesus is going to call 12 apostles, and that number 12 is significant. If you went, if, if Cade went to a playground and called 11 kids and have them stand over there, and 11 kids and have them stand over there, everybody pretty much would know they were about to play a football game. Five and five, they're about to play basketball. Jesus calls 12 apostles. Everybody at this time could see, wow, there's 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is calling a new community around himself. And this new community is a paradoxical community. If Jesus taps you on your shoulder and you place your trust in him, you become a walking paradox too. You cease to be conventional. You become a walking paradox. You become a forgiven forgiver. You become a wounded healer. You become a saved sinner. You become broken and blessed. You start thinking things are true like unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it will remain alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You start to think and believe that the greatest among you will be your servant. We start to believe that if we lose our life, we will save it. And we start to find that we're both dutiful and desperate. We're both broken and blessed. We're forgiven forgivers. We're a walking paradox that now we don't fit in a box anymore. 
that's okay. Jesus is bigger than our boxes. 